Hello and welcome to another episode of the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris and I'm joined, as usual, by my wonderful co-host Tom. Hello. And we're coming at you with a special pandemic edition, <laughs> I guess, a quarantine edition of uh, the, the podcast, looking at Stray Dog, the 1949 Kurosawa film. That's right. But I mean, I mean, before we get into the film, should we address like the insanity that we're yeah well, recording this under? <laughs> today, the Victorian government of Australia has suggested that, well, mandated that there'll be a, a close down of pretty much every um, business in, yeah. in the state. So we are now facing uh, a situation where no one's going to be working, more or less, the people that we know of. Yep. And I think <laughs> we're both agreeing that. Uh, this is the time for sitting home watching movies. So we're going to try and put out more films, uh, more episodes than usual. Uh, this one will come out Tuesday. We'll try and get another one out on Thursday as well. Uh, so, yeah, so hopefully you're, you're safe and you're, you're at home watching movies. Yeah. And hopefully we can give you some more content so you can continue watching Criterion. Yeah, I'm going to be working from home now um, until I'm told there's no more work to be done. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, a few of you are on Twitter, uh, Brian and uh, Captain Internationalist, you've asked for this, so here it comes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're, we're hopefully going to start churning out a little bit more. But um, kicking it off this week with Kurosawa. Yeah, uh, our homeboy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Precisely. Um, you'd seen this before. I'd never seen this uh, prior. Yep, this is one. Uh, we've got the physical DVD. You can hear the case rattling there. <laughs> so, we are, yeah, this is one I've, I've owned and I've seen, I think, this was my third time watching it. So, okay. yeah. Uh, do you want to do a, a back-of-the-box reading? Yes, it's a lot easier this time. I don't have to load the website. Yeah. A bad day gets worse for young detective Murakami when a pickpocket steals his gun on a hot, crowded bus. Desperate to right the wrong, he goes undercover, scavenging Tokyo's sheltered streets for the stray dog whose desperation has led him to a life of crime. Each, with each step, cop and criminal's lives become more intertwined and the investigation becomes an examination of Murakami's own dark side. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's... Uh... It's kind of a simple plot, I, I got to admit. It's Very not, much it's so. It's different to a lot of, um, basically all the other. Well, Ikiru, Ikiru was um, quite simple in its plot as well. Ikiru is simple its complexity in its... complexity is vast that's, in its implications it. in the character study and whatnot. But. Yeah, like, Ikaru has a very, at its at its core, a simple story, but the way, what it's saying with that simple story is very complex. Mm. This kind of... It's uh, for a lo- I was like ob- reading the Criterion essays and stuff and doing research on this one. You sort of figure out that this is it was Kurosawa's ninth film, so, and it's really 
considered to be the one where oh, this is Kurosawa now. Okay. Um, and it's it's basically it, not a lesser work, but it is like that's kind of really shitty to say, but it's like considered to be his first. Okay, you're doing something, you're saying something. It's like the proto Kurosawa. Mm. Like uh, like floating weeds with Ozu. Like you watch when we were watching the 34 version, you're like, I can see you you're just you're getting there. You're developing your style and you're starting to get there. That's kind of what this is for Kurosawa. Okay. Yeah. Because I got to admit that um, it, it it wasn't as good as I was hoping. I mean, yeah. when I'm going into a Kurosawa film, I'm thinking it's going to be absolutely amazing and yeah, yeah. perfect. Well, it's kind of good, though, that it's, it's, you're able to kind of... I mean, this is a prime example to be, like, curb your expect, expectations, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, not go in expecting everything is going to be high and low or Rashomon or Seven Samurai. Like, you got to <laughs> be like, all right, let's see what he's got this time. And if it is one of those, amazing. If it's not, you're like, all right. There's no bad Kurosawa film. But. No. No, there's not. No, I still, I still basically adored it. But yeah. he did say, uh, quoting him, that it mm. was a, too technical... Uh, and that all the technique had not really one thought in it. Yeah. Which I probably disagree with, the, the thought thing, but... It, it, it's one where, like, I think, like, he... There's something... Go- there's something very clearly something going on. Like, I mean, the back of the box explained it there, how it is, like, cop and criminal end up being one, but and Kurosawa being someone who has added in so many layers of, kind of, character development and social commentary and things into his work... That, that he's just like, eh, it's kind of base. <laughs> but it's... Sure. It's effectively base. Sure. So. Uh, well, it, it's a 1949 film, so it's coming right off post-war World War Two, mm-hmm. And I I did admire it for giving a real sense of what Tokyo was like. There's that sequence when um, Detective Murakami is deciding, well, my, my gun's stolen, I'm going to have to go into the underbelly mm. and ingratiate myself and make myself look like not a cop, but a you know some some shadowy figure and i think it's it's a really long sequence of him just kind of meandering through the streets and it's there's this you know really oppressive heat wave going on mm. and there's these superimposed shots kind of just it's one a- after the other and it's really drags but at the same time you get a really, really great sense of what it would have been like yeah. in, in Tokyo City. Well, um, apparently a lot of all of that was shot by... i got to pop my notes here. Like, that was um, shot by... Um, God, where did I put it? If I, it looks like I didn't even include it. No, right. um, but anyway, that was mostly shot by um, Kurosawa's assistant director, uh, Honda, who ended up becoming, like, later on in his career, he was the guy that directed the first Godzilla movie. Oh, okay. Just as a side note. But he and a camera operator, and I think, an, like, one of the other ADs, went and actually shot that in the real slums, like, in Yakuza-operated territories and stuff, and okay. kind of run and gunned it, and just shot it real... It, it, it had that quality that you get on YouTube when you're watching cell phone footage. Almost. Yeah, and apparently, like, whenever you saw uh, Detective Murakami's, like, legs walking, that is like, nope, that's the AD with pants on. That sure. is not Mafuni. <laughs> he was nowhere near there. That's a common trick, yeah. Yeah, and but it's so effective, and I had it written down in my notes as uh, it's the Billy Wilder Lost Weekend montage. <laughs> like, and it's it's great. Like, have you ever, you've probably never seen Lost Weekend? 
So I had a writer just going on an alcoholic binge and stuff, and that's where the famous, like, jazz music as a guy walking down the streets and, like, all the neon signs, like, come floating. Right. Yeah, Simpsons does a bit of a piss take on that. Exactly. Novel. And that's, it's Kurosawa doing his Lost Weekend montage, but it's, like, a different form of desperation. It's instead of, like, a guy trying to essentially drink himself to death almost, it's this guy, like, his desperation of, I need to get my fucking gun back. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and it kind of it's interesting that you bring up Godzilla as well because it does. It's this, it's that post-war Japanese filmmaker mentality of trying to make sense of all this stuff. Yeah, and I suppose that's why. I I, I took the story itself a, man, a a police officer losing his gun, fucking up, and trying to make amends. I don't know whether it's supposed to be intended to be this, but I I looked at it in some sense as an allegory for Japan's government yeah kind of fucking up and trying to i mean in the course of, of by now they're going like yeah we made a mistake and whatnot mm. um so that's, that's a real fascinating read that even hadn't even crossed my mind well yeah i mean that's why when i heard the quote uh, all that technique and not one real thought in it from uh, kurosawa i thought well i, I don't know like there's, there's something you could read into that. It, do, it doesn't. Oh, for sure. It kind of presents to me. It presents that allegory, but it doesn't. It doesn't really get into it. So it do, potentially, it, it's just kind of a. It's a collateral. surface level read almost of yeah. it. But it's yeah. That's I hadn't even thought of that, and that's that kind of makes it even more impactful. The whole all of the slum stuff, where it's actually showing the devastation and things that has happened to the Japanese people post war, and kind of the the government turning their back on them and things and. It's, yeah, like stuff that he would then later go on to explore way better a couple of years later with high and low, but... Mm, yeah. Yeah. But it's definitely Kurosawa trying to make sense of what happened uh, mm. in the war and stuff. Um, so, yeah, this was... Uh, I want to talk about Mifune. Obviously, we've got to talk about Mifune. Yeah. Uh, this is his third film with Kurosawa. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is his seventh film as an actor. Uh, and he, this is two years into his career. He is looking young and sexy. Yes, he certainly is. Uh, would smash. <laughs> just, yeah. just as an aside. <laughs> I just couldn't, like, whenever... Because he's so sweaty and he's got the hair over his... And, like, whenever he's doing the hair pull back, I'm like, I, I'm not a gay man, but... <laughs> like, he's looking good. Could have said sport. that even when we're watching High and Low. I'm not a gay man, but... But he's a little stern, and I, I didn't like him rocking those sweaters too much in mm. High and Low, but... Okay. Yeah. I, I don't mind that, no, man. Yeah. Uh, Safe but- to say, Mifune is now a whole pass for me, if he was still alive. <laughs> cool yeah <laughs> uh but i got i i kind of again going into this film i was thinking this is a mifune film as well and with that comes the the fiery spirit that is mifune's acting but it's not yeah. really there i mean he's playing a rookie cop um that he's eventually playing his age he's playing his age but and eventually he would come to be not a veteran, but he's definitely gone beyond the rookie status. That he, I, I would say one year later, like the, this is 1949. In 1950, they make Rashomon together. Okay. The, the three of them essentially as well. You've got Kurosawa, um, Mifune, and Takashi Shimura as well, who plays the veteran cop. Uh, Sato. Sato, sure. yeah. And yeah. also he's in the Kurosawa. And Seven Samurai. Samurai. And Low. Like, there's so many of them. Um, but but I'm, I'm more meaning that the character itself, the Mifune's playing, yeah. playing what I would consider to be a pretty, it's not sterile, like a little bit of a subdued character. Yeah. And I think towards the end, Mifune, Mifune's character and Mifune himself portraying, it, it kind of 
progressively explodes into that charismatic, um, crazy experience that you want out of a Mifuni performance. Yeah, he becomes the wild man both on, like in the characters, and then there's like the lore and like the the just gravitas that I think it comes with the confidence of. Like you said, this is two years into his career. Like, he hasn't... Whereas, you know, he hasn't kind of built that up yet. Whereas, a couple of years later, he's like, Oh, no, I'm Toshiro Mufuni. Yeah. <laughs> like, I got yeah. this. I always imagine that he was like... He's like Tarantino's DiCaprio. Do you know what I mean? You, you mean, like, in terms of an actor? Or you mean, like, the characters? This, no, the, the, in terms of the actor relationship with the director, you pull in... You pull in... Tarantino wants DiCaprio because he can run his mouth. And you pull Mufuni in because he's... A fiery lion on set. Okay, yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. Um, so I'm always, I'm or always like a Scorsese Joe Pesci. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like I, don't, I don't feel comfortable comparing those to Joe Pesci with well, the <laughs> Really? See, I, I think like I actually, you know what? You're that's, right. No, that's why you're I pulled right. in Pesci because I didn't feel comfortable referring, <laughs> comparing DiCaprio to Mafuni. Oh, you like Joe Pesci more than DiCaprio? I think pound for pound, probably. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> like, you're probably right, yeah. I agree with you. Now. Like, DiCaprio is good, but, like, after we saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Claire was like, hot take, DiCaprio's shit. <laughs> and it made me... Really? She's like, I don't think he's done anything good since, like, 2000. And I'm he, like, wow. He's stale. I think that he's stale. You know, he's... He's, he's, he's one good, of the, but he's stale. He's doing the same things. He's one of those actors where you see... You know his bag of tricks. Yeah. And... He doesn't surprise you. Yeah. No. And you're like, you're good, but I know you're going to do that thing where you're going to get really intense and then you're going to scream. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Whereas Mifuni is a guy that, and this is like a prime example of, you don't know what he's going to do, where he's going to do it, or what type of character he's going to play. Mm. It's, yeah. And I was I was part surprised. I, I, was, I realized that he was young and it's one of his kind of first roles, more mm. or less. But I was still surprised. I was like, oh, this is... This is different from what I've seen before. Yeah. Um, and it's... I think it's like you've summed it up. You've hit the nail on the head perfectly there with it being your use of that fieriness that he brings. And in this, there's a meekness because immediately the, the setup and the opening of the film is putting his character at a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. It's the idea that he has fucked up yeah. in the worst possible way and so he has to essentially go to his boss like a meek shy like a dog shamed essentially and just be like yeah i didn't recognize him yeah not until he started going undercover in, in the underbelly and then and and you get like, those close-ups oh, the yeah, superimposed yeah. close-up of the eyes like looking yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, that's, yeah it's like a the birth of buffoony on on screen essentially yeah yeah so so yeah um we're talking about we talked about that prolonged prolonged bloody nine minute sequence of him walking around oh what about the the sequence at the baseball court at the baseball uh, stadium yeah I, I wanted to uh, throw something at you to see if you had the same idea um, or like had this thought pop in your head shooting the rodeo shoot the rodeo <laughs> Yeah. yeah. No, actually, Cole mentioned that. Shoot the rodeo? And it was yeah. the shoot the rodeo moment with the baseball. I was just about to mention that, yeah. But I like that. I couldn't help it. For those that don't know, shoot the rodeo is a term that's been coined by the folks over at Red Letter Media, and it refers to a filmmaker just being like, hey, the rodeo is in town. Let's shoot that and get instant production value. Yeah. Um, that's what popped into my head because it is so, such, like, almost stock footage looking. Yeah. It. it it, it didn't fit. It didn't 
you kind of taken out of the, the film. Yeah, but I don't think that was Kurosawa's intention of like, hey, we can do this, let's do it. I think he wrote a scene at the baseball game. Oh, I'm sure that we said, oh, he's shooting the rodeo as a joke. He's not actually doing it. He's not actually, but it's like the, the technicalities of actually being able to shoot the rodeo in this sense, like, you know, shoot the baseball game would be just like, no, it's a nightmare. Let's just like to actually act the scenes. And so, yeah, we'll get those scenes where we have, it's way more impressive than the shitty movies that Red Letter do. Like there's a good sized crowd around the people. Yeah. But, but I, I got the, the sense that, that was going on because it kind of hangs on a lot of the footage to a large degree. And you see a lot of baseball happening. You see a lot of film. baseball and it doesn't mean anything. You're like no. you, you can, you can get away with an establishing shot a shot or two mm. of the baseball going on uh, and then just, you know, have your scene play out. Yeah. But this one, it would just kept going back to it. <laughs> it was a lot of baseball. Like, going on here, man? <laughs> yeah. But again, like, that, I, the thing that popped into my head was like, well, is this again a post-war commentary on the fact that Amer- uh, the US, uh, sorry, that Japan adopted essentially baseball an American-made sport and made it their own kind of thing and became obsessed with it. Is that like a nice post-war commentary on the appropriate... Oh, like unification of, yeah. of nations? Kind yeah. Of yeah. Okay. So it's, it's kind of... But again, it doesn't, the film never... Like, it doesn't... It's a... You boil it, down, boil it down and it's a buddy cop film. Yes. Yes, which is something I want to get into later, but yeah. Well, I think apparently I read that it's one of the first in that genre. Yeah. Um, but that's a simple... I mean, nowadays you go to a buddy cop film at the cinema and you are not expecting any kind of social commentary. You're, you're expecting some popcorn film that you can forget after a week. The buddy cop movies died in the late 80s. Okay. I, I cannot think of a single decent I, I'm one. pretty sure that there's like Redbox shit out there that's just trash, but it's... Oh, you still, like, still... It, it still gets made constantly. Like the... I don't know why, but the first one I was jumping into my head is like Two Guns with Denzel Washington and Mark Wahlberg. Like... Yeah, they tr- still trash. Yeah, they still churn out these shitty movies, but like... The Buddy Cop movie used to be good, and I used to love it. It used to be good, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of fun stuff, like Eddie Murphy's catalog's got a lot of... Well, he was never the Buddy... Like, I mean, he was at odds against um, Rosewood and uh, Taggart. That's like the 48 Bellas. Hours. Oh, yeah, you know, but that's not Cop. That's Cop versus Criminal, and okay. they hate each other. Okay. <laughs> Rewatch that movie. Nick Nolte is real fucking racist in that film. Ew. Okay. <laughs> but that's, like, the point. <laughs> yeah. Just, but... but but my point is, is that you know, um, it, it's a buddy cop film, and basically, the buddy doesn't show up till an hour in. Yeah, but there's a lot of you, you can mine it for some some depth beyond just oh, a, sure. a popcorn film. Yeah, I mean, we haven't even actually gotten into like the actual <laughs> thematic stuff, but like, let's keep going on this train for a bit. Yeah, well, talk about. It. I, I don't. I don't know what I, I was trying to find um, an instance of a buddy cop film prior to this. It's certainly. It seems to be the first Japanese buddy cop film ever. Yeah. Um, they, they, I, I couldn't find any instance of, of something outside Japan. I'm looking at America. Um, I'm sure that there is. Like, it's 49. It's like you, you're going to have... That idea is just seems so obvious right yeah. from the get-go from like you know film noir mm. happening in the 20s even like. and i think probably because of our age we're going to stuff that's like you know the, the seven the 60s 70s 80s buddy cop films and like trying to reach for something further back yeah, we just kind of genre matured yeah we, we don't kind of have that <laughs> that depth of knowledge <laughs> to kind of i'm not an expert in buddy cop films man I, yeah uh, i wish i was though <laughs> oh really <laughs> yeah 
Man, if you, you like, God damn it, Midnight Run. I know it's not a buddy. It's like cop criminal one again, but like, God damn. <laughs> I, I like the the plot device of of the good versus bad. Mm. I mean, well, this that 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 story is as old as fucking time. Maybe yeah. all the rings is about that, but you put it in in modern day terms, and the best version of that would always be someone in the police force force versus some uh, someone in high up in the criminal hierarchy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm looking at uh, what's that Sylvester Stallone uh, film that's set in the future with Pizza Hut everywhere. Oh, uh, oh Judge t- uh, uh, Bell, Demolition Man. Yeah, yeah. It's like that's that's like yeah, that's the same kind of thing. Yeah, but that's a great premise though. <laughs> the idea of yeah. like old school cop go like an old school devilish criminal go to a future with no violence, so they could just rule the place. But yeah, it's a yeah great plot. Yeah. Not a great movie, but a great idea. <laughs> that should be remade, I'm just going to say that. Yeah. It's old enough now to probably be remade. Yeah. I want to see a remake with still Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes. No, no, you put him as the... No. <laughs> no, fucking way. Yeah, you put come on, them... they're both great actors, though. You put you put Sylvester Stallone as the, the head of the cops and you put Wesley Snipes as the mafia boss or something like that. Yeah. And then, and then the, that's the little callback. Mm. But um, on the buddy cop thing, it is like you couldn't help watching this film. I had it in my head watching it, like... They are the proto Riggs and Murtaugh. It's like Danny Glover and Mel Gibson. It is that, like, hot-headed rookie who needs to learn how to become a good detective versus being teamed up with the veteran who knows how to keep his cool and kind of just go through it all. Yeah. yeah. Like, which was where one of the reads I took on the film was that it's basically the, the allegory for the gun and, you know, him losing his gun and it's for... For Murakami, it's all about wanting... He needs to find his gun. And he needs to stop his gun from causing harm. And Sato, slowly over the course of the film and the investigation, trains him like, you need to disassociate yourself. It's no longer your gun. It is just the gun. Yes. Start looking at the facts and stop... Stop letting stop your emotional so side of your brain stop you over. Yeah. Disconnect the personal. Mm. And then... There's, uh, like, you know, there's this great scene on the rooftop where he's like, if it wasn't a cult, it would have been a Berenger, it would have been a something, like, you know, there's, you know, disassociate in that way. And then later that night, he's like, come with me and takes him back to his house. And he's like, which is a great example of like, this is where the personal can be. I love that scene. Yeah. That's my, might be my favorite scene in the whole thing. And, and he's like admiring all the citations he has up on his wall and his mantelpiece. And he's like... I'm an excellent cop because I've learned to disassociate the personal from my police work. Yeah. The personal is here yeah. and you need to make time and that's what this is, but don't let the two worlds mix. I, I like the, the moment where they're all looking, they're, they're all taking a moment, the adults are looking at the, the children sleeping. Yeah. Um, and up until that point, the whole film has been quite abrasive. Yeah. Like, obviously, all the shots of the hate people fanning themselves like not actual that, electric fans handheld going camera work when yeah. was the when have we ever seen handheld really in, in a kurosawa film yeah like yeah it's it's like you you feel sticky for, yeah. for, for a long time and then you get to that scene um and the sun is setting so it's this lovely moment where you can just take a fucking break yeah and have an interlude between the mess that is tokyo city yeah um and realize that it's not just about cops versus robbers. It's there's like something deeper in everyone's. Th- you don't just you don't just run off trying to get trying to defeat evil or or, yeah. or right the wrongs of everything. There's also 
You're doing it for a reason. Yeah. And like that's, that's your children or whatever. Yeah, it's community. That, it's that beautiful that scene kind of serves the two purposes. It's like like I was saying, it's the, the one of the reads I had where it was the disassociation of the personal the personal from the work life and that's like, you know, Sato physically showing him that. Decompartmentalizing it. Exactly. Yeah. And then but also in that scene you have Murakami explain how he set up essentially that he is the same person as Yusa. Like, they were both returning veterans who had their stuff stolen, and that's where that seed is first planted of cop and, the, the shadow or the mirror image of each other. Yeah. And, th- and that's... That's essentially that's the, what the film is. That's the, that's the crux of the film there. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the whole idea of post-war, what do you do? How do you cope? Hmm. Some and people take advantage and some people try and right the wrong and, 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 and be good. Yeah, Mafuni has this wonderful monologue where he's talking about how he, like, you know, at this point they'd learned some information about Yusa, about how he was a returning veteran who had all of his stuff stolen when he was on the bus back from being deployed. Like, So he essentially came back after serving his country with nothing and was just essentially destitute. And so he turned to the life of crime and became the person he was. And Mufuni now feeling comfortable enough that Sato is able to open up and explain he had the exact same thing happen, but was faced with a crossroads. He could go down the path of Yusa, or, but he's like, no, I'm not that person. I, and so that's why he became a detective and took the job he did. And so that's Kurosawa just brilliantly being like, this is, if you haven't gotten it by now, here's what our film's about. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's, you know, what happens at when someone that is essentially two people that are essentially the same person take divergent paths and what happens yeah do you uh, my my question to you is does the film fully explore that to some kind of end end result where you can try and figure out what what is it what's it saying what's it doing like what is the point of all of that met like well it's, that examination i guess it's putting forward a, a, a concept of when you're at the crossroads and you're under pressure, what do you do? I keep thinking that it's, it still falls back to, it's almost too simple. It's too black and white. The film presents itself. Well, you're either very bad or you're very good. Mm. Do you know what I mean? There's no, it's, it it plays with the idea that he could have gone, uh, Murakami's character could have gone either way, but, it it's, never it never explores that to a further degree. There's no gray. There's no character that represents the gray. No, no, and that's kind of the problem. And I think why Kurosawa has openly said like he didn't, he doesn't like this film it's, that much. It's kind of like too simple. Or, yeah, or could have been explored more. Because like I think, and that's why it's it's everyone said it's proto Kurosawa. It's like his first dabbling with masterpiece where he's like he's setting he's he's learn he, he's taking the baby steps mm. to learn how to get to where he will go as a filmmaker. Um, thematically it's kind of stunted i would say but yeah but but visually well that's uh, it, it's <laughs> very incredible well that's where i was gonna jump in like the um, and actually the, tonally as well the, the culmination of that like the whole idea of them is the mirror like you know the the revert the shadow of each other or the reverse mirrors it's the standoff at the end it's like so perfectly like visually hammering home this point and it's great <laughs> like but you're like I, I love it. I get it. It felt like, like Star Wars, actually. Yeah. Like, like Luke versus Vader. And also all those wipes. <laughs> the scene transitions, there was a lot of, like, wipes as well. Yeah, yeah, there was the, yeah, there was the Star Wars wipes. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, no shit. I which, chuckled when I saw that. Which is kind of like, well, this is, like, 
why does Kurosawa need to be making a big, grandiose masterpiece that is a saying X, Y, Z? Why can't he just make essentially a popcorn film? Well, well I, we just mentioned Star Especially, Wars and the Hidden Fortress he made, which which was, was the impetus for, yeah. for Star Wars. So, mm. I mean, he is making... It's a buddy cop film, like he's making a yeah. proto-popcorn movie. And there's nothing wrong with that, and it's great. But um, I think why I... My read on it being the whole idea of the um, Murakami learning to separate the personal from the police work... Mm. Um, it, it's like that end scene at the... Tra- like, before that leads to the foot chase. The... Because I think I latch onto that because it's the one that has the arc. It has an arc, this kind of theme of him learning to disassociate at that train station. The final thing after Sato has been shot and he kind of, you know, uh, the the girl uh, Harumi um, kind of says to him, like, this is where yeah, the meeting is Yeah, Harumi Namiki is the Yasu's lady friend slash dancer. Yeah. Mm, she's like, this is when he's going to meet me. And he goes and he's here. It's the first time we have voiceover and it's the inner monologue. And it's the whole, like, be calm, be calm, be a detective, don't, don't let your emotions get the best of you. And it's him learning and he's able to solve it by disassociating the personal and the kind of heart and actually just sit and do detective work with it. Yeah, he's, he's shedding, he's shedding the rookie yeah. mentality. Yeah. It, th- so that's why it's like, there's the arc, I guess, but it's not the it, it's intended fine. arc, I it, guess. It, it's fine. It's, again, it's a buddy cop film. So, yeah. So like... You know, the character arc is I matured as a cop. Mm. Not just that. It, like, it, it sounds like we're downplaying the film. Like, it's really no, no, fucking no. good. <laughs> no, because, because now I, now we can talk about... Um, I mentioned earlier that the uh, the scene where Sato takes Murakami back to his house was the best scene. It's, it's not. Um, that sequence where Murakami goes to Yasu's lady friend's place, uh, Hirumi... Harumi, sits with her the dress scene the dress scene yeah. and uh and sato is is he's where is he is it a, he's, he's, he's gone to the ho- no it's the hotel, hotel that um because uh yasu has left he'd been to see harumi and left a matchbook there mm-hmm. so he's gone to investigate and try and find him and found that he is still in the hotel still in his room so he's calling for backup on the phone yeah yeah that whole sequence um, Those beautiful is, steady cam, like, or not—it's not even steady cam, but it's like the dollying shots, like through yeah. floating through this lobby, as it's like the woman with the crying baby accidentally letting the info slip as the feet come down the stairs, like Hitchcockian level beautiful, like staging of your actors. Plus the the tension throughout. I think it's like a it's like a fifteen minute sequence or whatever. Yeah, and the tension is building to such a high degree that I was. It, it was it was palpable man it was it was quite incredible it's it's it makes it's one of those scenes that makes you sit up and be like oh yeah this is why kurosawa is i was biting my nails <laughs> biting my nails the, the whole sequence of of he needs to talk to mirakami but the guy that's um in the lobby that's taking the call from sato is is got his name wrong because it begins raining and so the heat wave breaks yeah and everything comes tumbling down all the rain just starts gushing mm. um because the tension is just com- just falling away at this point mm. well that's um, also like the weather is a very emblematic thing as well for the film and it, as it has been for a lot of kurosawa films mm. where it's like it's just this heat wave and it's like building like it's, it's like a boiling pot like with this heat and it's just building 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 and everyone's like the rains are going to come the rains are going to come and then um, Mifuni has the Murakami has the wonderful thing of he thinks something bad's going to happen tonight. Rains arrive and it just like everything collapses in on itself with this rain. 
Yeah, and he can't get onto Murakami because there's the the phone call mix up with the name, and uh, Harumi comes to the phone call, the, the phone and picks it up, and it's just like that that split second where you know Sato was alone and couldn't deal and got shot. Yeah, or no, he chases after. Um, it's like uh, Yasu uses that opportunity to race through, and kind of they end up having a little bit of gunfight, and that we see, you, you know, we don't see, but you don't see the gun the gunshot, but yeah. he was shot by him. Um, Anyway, that that sequence, uh, yeah, was was certainly the, the most engaging part of the film. Oh, for sure. Um, but it didn't quite give you the uh, the. It did, it, yeah, it it was it was really good. Uh, I think I've explained why. I mean, there's, I've, I've gone through why there's a heightened sense of tension, and there's, it, it just didn't really meet the levels of, of high and low. I think the, the problem is, is like, I'm comparing well, yeah, it to... Yeah, you're comparing, comparing it to... I'm comparing it to fucking masterpieces. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Like, so let's... It's like comparing the story of Floating Weeds to, to Tokyo Story. Yeah, it's different as well. And it is, like, you know, an early work for a filmmaker before they kind of get to their point. Um, I, I, st- I love this film still. Like I said, this is like... I have the DVD. This is like the third time I've watched it. I think it is a great film to watch for all of the reasons we've said about it being a buddy cop film and kind of that proto of that of that genre. And I think the big part is getting to see Mufuni do something different, something we haven't seen him do before. And then also um, Shimura as well as the veteran cop. I think he's amazing in that role. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Like, I, I think... For me, it's probably his number two role after Ikaru that he did with Kurosawa. Like, he, he's great in everything else. Um, or maybe Rashomon as well is up there. But it's like seeing him... He feels like a warm, loving dad of a cop. Like, and it's so perfectly matched against Mifune's, like, meek. Like, I fucked up, man. I fucked up. I gotta make this right. And he's like, it's fine, buddy. Like, we're all in this together. Like, you know, it's such a warm character to have mm. it, not just in the film but also f- to counteract Mifune's character at that time this kind of volatile man, young man on edge not knowing what the fuck's going to happen and to have this kind of calming person to then who essentially becomes his mentor yeah he, he does yeah. Mm, it's so lovely <laughs> I'm kind of at an odds with how I feel about this film because I enjoyed the technical aspects Building the tension, or anything to do with the heat wave, came across really strong. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt, I felt the weather, you know. But ultimately, ultimately, I feel like it, it, it was stunted in that it was putting forward some really good ideas, but never followed through. Never went anywhere with them. We've talked about tiptoeing around some pretty grand ideas here yeah but i feel like you know like the 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 allegory of post-war japan government picking up the pieces and and the idea that a man can have or a woman can have like a person uh can be at a crossroads and make a decision but it's not just black and white there should be some kind of gray in the middle yeah Um, there's no necessary resolution to that like, after the arrest happens and he finally chases him down, we're left with that hospital scene 
where um, Sato is like, look out the window, boy, there's more criminals for us to catch. Yeah. <laughs> and it just, like, fade to black. Ultimately, like, the, the plot ends with Mukami getting the bad guy. Yeah. And he's like, you want a sequel? Because we can have sequels. There's more of them out there. <laughs> and and to me, it's, it's like I, I'm presented with that and I'm like, uh, okay, we, where's we, the... <laughs> We've Where's got, the conclusion to that thematic arc? We, we've got really base on that like ending thing, well, but like that's that's like the proto, like essentially what he's trying to say there. He's he's going like, look, like because he says, look, there are a lot of look under those roofs. There's a bunch of bad people out there, and there's also a bunch of good people out there. Mm-hmm. Like it is not black and white. Like you know, it is but just. No, but he's it, saying it's black and white. Like there's good people and there's bad people. But the like, <laughs> what I'm what I meant by that is like you know it's. There's black and there's white, and that's what makes up the world. Like, you know, it's like, you know, I guess... I don't want to fall into the trap of being like, oh, you know, my ideals don't connect with this film's ideals, so it's bad. Mm. Well, I just... It I just didn't fully explore the ideas. Yeah, well, that, and it could that's... Have, and I'd expect that from a Kurosawa film. But that that's the problem, I think, is is because, uh, it, like I said, it is proto. It's yeah. like the early... It's him first learning or, like, developing the idea of, like, hey, I can say some really interesting grandiose shit with my art here I'm not, not just having to do it to get bums in seats like I can actually say something and it's it, it's him learning to dabble with it and I think that like the issue of that never kind of coming to fruition is like how it was made as well and how he wrote it mm-hmm. which was um, he was a massive fan of a um, French author I'll look at my notes to get this right um, oh, sorry, a Belgian writer called Georges Simenon, uh, who wrote uh, detective novels, and he was like a massive fan. And was like, I want to write like a noir detective thing. Which remind me, we need to discuss the whole noirness of this. Okay, yeah. we still have not done that. And um, he was like, Well, fuck, I don't know how to write a detective story as a script. I'm going to write it as a novel first, and then adapt the novel that I wrote into a script. And by doing that, he's like. Uh, shit doesn't translate I can't do it right and so he found it even harder to do that okay and so I think it's him trying to imitate someone that he was a fan of specifically so he could do a genre style thing not necessarily to make a point and say something I see what you're saying yeah he's just trying to make a fun detective buddy cop movie essentially yeah. like apparently this was a true story about it and there was articles written about this detective who lost his gun and Kurosawa was like that's a great idea I'm gonna run with that. <laughs> like he's not. It's, tr- it, it's him yeah. doing a popcorn film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get what you're saying. It's, it's kind of like, I, I kind of compare it to some of Tarantino's mm. scenes where it's like, not too fussed about the message. I just want to make a really, really engaging sequence here. Yeah. Um. You know, like um, like the opening scene in Glorious Bastards. It's like, how can I? get the most out of a cinematic experience yeah um, on all levels and you know i mean i mean oh that that scene though has a shitload of story established in it though <laughs> yeah yeah i know and and I'm, I'm more yeah okay fair enough no but i understand which is like yeah i, I get i'm more talking mean. about if okay, I, like I a, a, good, a good example of that like using the tarantino allegory like analog sorry would be uh Stuck in the middle with you scene in Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, okay. Doesn't serve any real purpose other than, like, you, there are a million ways you could have gotten Mr. Orange to shoot Mr. Brown. Mm-hmm. Like, or Mr. Blonde, sorry. Like, it needs to, you know, but he does it in the most cool, stylish, like, yeah. build-up way. How can I use cinema language to just make a really, really engaging sequence? Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's, like, I was just having fun and playing. 
But I'd mentioned and we need to discuss, like, the, the noirness of this, I think, is great. Mm-hmm. Like, it is, like, initially, because it is, it's such a wonderful idea to set a noir during a heat wave. So you're forcing yourself to not rely on the John Huston style tropes of, like, Venetian lighting and everything's dark and shadowy. Yeah. It's, but all the tropes are there. Explain. Because I, as you said, there's the, that heat wave and the light is such a big factor. And so, mm, well, I mean, like, uh, filmic- filmically, like you're not having those tropes of how a shot should technically look in a, like, quote unquote, noir. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you don't have the seat. Ce- like, I mean, I guess you do have the ceiling fans, but in this case, it's a lot of hand fans and stuff and everybody's smoking. Um, you have the femme fatale in the form of the dancer and they have to go to the nightclub and shake her down and you've got all of these beats that you would see in any other noir story and it's just kind of lovely to see Kurosawa get to do one. Yeah, true. Yeah, true, true, true. But it's like technically, I guess, neo-noir because it's him taking all of those conventions that had been established in American cinema and doing something new and different by setting it mostly in daylight and during a heat wave, so it's like ultra daylight. (laughs) I I get... I trip myself up when I'm talking about film noir because it's it's always so visual. Yeah. But when you explain it like that, it, it, where there's like the, the tropes of going after the damsel that's like a sexy lady. Or there's the noir tropes of, like, filmically and stylistically, like, how it can look and sound. But there's also the story tropes of it, which date back to, like, you know, the no- the old pulp novels and stuff. So. Yeah, I've got to get better at picking them up I'm, I'm, I'm not good at picking well, I mean, up well I mean no I'm pretty shithouse at it it's just I've been watching a fair bit of detective stuff lately so that's okay. why I'm like trying to clue into that stuff okay um, yeah I don't know is there anything else we haven't brought up that you want to talk about with this one I think I'm okay uh, move on to some yeah, trivia see trivia, if yeah. that spurs anything um, yeah so obviously you've brought up the whole Kurosawa saying that uh he did not like this film that much, and he referred to it as too technical, saying that all the all technique, nothing really behind it. Uh, I think he, later on um, he mentioned that, that yeah. actually looking back on it in, in his, the 80s, he was like, actually, that was a good production. It was In his autobiography, he wrote um, that it, out of all of the film productions he's ever been on, that was the most fun and most like smooth, easygoing production. Everyone had a great time. Uh, it went completely smoothly, and he's said, like, I think that translates onto the screen. You can see that we're all having a lot of fun making this movie, mm-hmm. despite the fact that it doesn't really do or say anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, I, but feel, I, I feel dirty saying that about a fucking no, no, but that, movie. But that's fine. Like, does, like, there are so many f- great filmmakers that make films that don't say anything. Mm-hmm. They're just there for the pure entertainment value of it all. Because, I mean, honestly, that's where film started as a medium, was to entertain. Okay. And then, you know, as it developed, people realised, hey, we can say a lot of interesting and fun, wonderful things with this medium. Let's do that. And so this is Kurosawa just, like I said, like, developing his tools that he would later develop. And as yeah. in terms of a purely entertainment value film it is top notch I think certainly the, the second half I, I feel like it yeah. was dragging for me but what with those <laughs> baseball shots and whatnot. but this is my dig at Kurosawa but what Kurosawa film doesn't drag at some point <laughs> no film drags if it's good all the way through true but like oh, that's the thing like I don't think this film drags because it is set up and it just kind of lets you live in those characters and then you it kind of works to where it ends up going I think mm. Yeah. 
Um, I talked about how the uh, it was supposedly based off a real gun theft, um, and how Kurosawa had written it as a novel before a script. Um, this I thought was super interesting. During the opening credits, uh, there was footage of a panting dog. Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, however, when American censors saw the footage, they assured. Uh, no, sorry, they assumed that the dog had been harmed, and that's why it was making those, like, that panting and kind of looked in distress. Uh, not the fact that it was in a heat wave or anything. Uh, this run-in with the American censors caused Kurosawa to remark that this was the only time he wished Japan had not lost the war. Whoa. Um, that being said, like, my interpretation of that is that he, of the American assumption of Japanese people is to that they will happily... Torment a dog for you it's, know it's, it's that racist. Thing. Yeah, so it could just like, be really God hot in Tokyo it. on the day. So. Exactly, and it's like God, that him just kind of I think lamenting like God damn it, like mm. ugh. Um, and as a result, the film was not released in the US until 1963. So a good while later, after Kurosawa was Kurosawa. Just of that, I don't know. I commend that they'll be thinking. You know, you can't put that shit out if there's a possibility of yeah. But fucking, but like, but but dude, the racist Milo Otis is it Milo Otis that was all fucked that's, up? That's also a Japanese film. Oh okay. <laughs> oh shit. Bad no. example. Bad example. Lol. But I guess that brings us. To <laughs> 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 FYI, I watched it kind of recently. That film is still super fucked up. Like, yeah. That was an American movie. No, no, it's a Japanese film that then was dubbed over by Dudley Moore. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, look into the history of that one. It's real messy. Um, But anyway, uh, back to Stray Dogs. This leads us to the actual Criterion edition. Uh, So it's still in print from Criterion as a one-disc DVD, and it's available on the Criterion channel. Uh, But if you get the physical release, it comes with an audio commentary by Stephen Prince, author of The Warriors Cinema, the cinema of Akira Kurosawa, a 32-minute documentary on Stray Dogs from the series Akira Kurosawa, It Is Wonderful to Create, including interviews with Kurosawa, production designer Yoshiro Muraki, actress Kiko Awaji, and others, as well as uh, usual booklet and essays that Criterion usually do. Have you watched any of these special features? I haven't really. I've read the essays and stuff in the booklet, um, but I haven't really delved into the features. I probably should. I want you to spend. You own the DVD. I want to spend a day because all the Kurosawa Criterions have a segment from the Akira Kurosawa. It is wonderful to create. So I just want to spend a day, maybe when I'm like hungover, or I guess now I'm in quarantine or like self isolation and not working, just like binge all of them. I guess. Yeah. Like, it almost is a mini-series. I think that'd be cool. But I guess, unless you got anything else, that will wrap us up for this week's episode. Look into Kira Kurosawa's Stray Dog. Uh, I think that's it. What's what's next? Next is The Tin Drum by Volker Schlondorf. And you've told me that it's pretty full-on? It's, it's, I, I reckon it's right up your alley. Oh, okay. It is weird and bizarre. Um... Volker Schlondorf with I think the second or maybe third film of his we've done now but this is what kind of introduced me to him um, it is a bizarre film about a five year old boy who makes the decision to stop aging okay that and, sounds delightful and, and where we go from that is weird and bizarre and wonderful and it's a trippy bizarre great film Right. So I guess tune in, uh, I guess, probably later this week for that episode. <laughs> yeah, so if this is Tuesday, 
then Thursday we'll, we'll try. Yeah, we're going to try for you know mid 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 to end of the week and get that one out. Maybe an episode every three to four days or something like that. We'll okay. don't hold us to it, but we're just gonna... we'll do our best. We'll try and create more content as yeah. much as possible in for those people that are housebound. It gives you guys something to listen to, and it gives us something to do. So, um, yeah. I guess on that note, thank you for listening. Uh, we appreciate it, and uh, we'll be back with the tin drum. But for this week's episode, I'm Chris, and I'm Tom. See you next time.